0: Perhaps you've heard or even made statements like these before. I'll go to church this weekend if my schedule allows. You know, I don't like large crowds, so church really isn't for me. I can do church anywhere. It isn't a building, right? I can do church in the comfort of my own home. I'm not really a people person. That's why I like Christianity, because it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus said, do not judge, lest you be judged. That's why I don't go to church. All they do is judge you. Why should I join a church? I'm a part of the universal church, after all. Sadly, statements like these are ones we hear far too often. People, and sadly often Christians, have missed the glory of the church. Now, why spend our time with the book of Ephesians? In fact, we're going to spend the entire year considering this letter. Why devote so much of the preaching calendar to this book? Well, it's because it is my hope that as a congregation, that even if you've been a part of this church for 70 years or more, some of you have, that your love for the local church would be rekindled. That perhaps if you are just a novice Christian, one who you know drops in and drops out, that if you drop in enough in this year, that we might spark in you a greater love for what God is doing in this church. Ephesians contains perhaps some of the greatest and grandest statements in all the Bible concerning the local church. Consider statements like this. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And there is one body and one hope that belongs to your call. And rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into Him who is the head from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working together properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And you hear that A healthy church leads to healthy Christians. Maturing church leads to mature Christians. Or perhaps the richest passage in all of the book of Ephesians comes in chapter 3. When the apostle Paul declares that to me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden for ages who created all things so that through, through Jesus, through pastors, through deacons, through Sunday school, know that through the gathering of the church, what happens right here at 1045 every Lord's Day, the gathering of the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I love the way Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. That every time the church assembles on the Lord's day, angels stop what they're doing in heaven and peer down at what God is doing to save men and women for his glory. You see, it's through the church not through parachurch ministries, not through Sunday school, not through Wednesday night Bible studies, not through small groups, through the gathering of the church that God's glory shines the brightest. Friends, it seems that church should be on your priority column, not merely your convenience column in your schedule. God has designed the church to be a central aspect of what it means to faithfully follow Jesus. Now, to give us a sense of context as we begin a new letter, perhaps you've never studied this letter, perhaps this is one of your favorite letters, and you're just going to be so encouraged to hear sermons about it every week, and you'll use them to beat up others. My hope, rather, is that you would get to know God better through it. So just give give a sense of context, you heard a little bit of it earlier from Acts chapter 19. Paul here is writing a letter to a church in Ephesus. It says it right there in chapter 1. And he's perhaps writing not only to one church, but to many churches in the surrounding region of Asia Minor, what for us today is modern Turkey. He's writing sometime around AD 60 during his imprisonment in Rome. He writes a number of other letters during this time. Colossians and Philemon are penned, most likely during this same period. We know that because Colossians and Ephesians share many of the same phrases, though written for entirely different purposes. Ephesians, unlike many of Paul's letters, is not occasional. It has no really reason, uh, specific issue, so it's not like Colossians in that it's it's not written to fight theological error, like he did in Colossae, or to correct a false gospel, like he did in Galatians, or to correct sinful behavior, like he did in First and Second Corinthians. This makes Ephesians what is called a circular letter. It was easily passed around the churches there in Asia Minor. In fact, you will even find in your Bible maybe a footnote that says that in some manuscripts the word Ephesians is missing. Well, that's not because it was written to a different church, that was because other churches just sort of inserted their name. So this morning we could easily just say to the saints who are in Avon Park and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This general nature helps us really because it makes it more applicable to us. There's not a particular occasion that gives rise to it, but rather this is part and parcel what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a New Testament church. It's a letter written to Christians living, as you heard in Acts 19, in a very perverse and sinful culture not unlike our own. So as much as we complain about the wickedness of the the community or culture that we live in, friends, this early church lived in one just like ours. While not having this particular occasion or unifying theme, uh, there are really three main purposes that Paul has taken up his pen to write to this church. The first is to encourage their faith. Uh, Paul wants to encourage them in their faith, to, to spurn them on, to encourage them, to press on, to keep going. He wants to promote unity among them. Even Luke. Tips his hand, if you will, in Acts chapter 19 when he mentions Jews and Greeks again and again in that chapter. That was a real issue going on in Ephesus. There was a division among the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul's writing and saying, listen, you're one new people. You're not Jew and Gentile, but you're one in Christ. Perhaps we need to hear about unity this morning. And lastly, he wrote to exhort them to holiness. In fact, the latter half is taken up with that. So, friend, do you often struggle with doubt and anxiety? Do you struggle with doubt and anxiety? Friend, the book of Ephesians is just for you. Do you struggle loving others? Do you, do you struggle loving people who are different than you? Then, Ephesians is for you. Has your growth and holiness stalled? Have you resolved in this new year to say, hey, I want to be more like Jesus? Then Ephesians is for you. Now, Paul has divided this letter into two parts. So, if you have your Bible open, it it easily divides into two parts. So, chapters one through three is where Paul lays out the theological foundation that he'll build on in chapters four through six. So, one through three and four through six are the two parts. Of one whole. And as Paul lays out in these early chapters, chapters one through three, he has two big prayers, one in chapter one and one that ends chapter three, that really brings together the whole as he prays that this congregation might know God better through his word. So from our gracious calling in chapters one through three, he transitions to how we live out this calling in chapters four through six. This theme of God's gracious calling unites the whole. So God has called the people out of all of humanity to make them holy. One could summarize the whole letter in this way. God has graciously called sinners by saving them through the death of his son so that they, that is this people, might live righteously as the body of Christ for all eternity. In other words... He's created a people, and this people is identified in this letter as a body or the body of Christ. And this body, though was unrighteous, is made righteous through a process of what we call sanctification. Friends, with all of that in mind, the somewhat of a lengthy introduction, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. It's found on page 976 in the Pew Bibles provided. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, let me just encourage you, grab that, turn to page 976, and then, when we're done today, take that Bible home and read it as our gift from you, and through it, get to know God better. This morning, we're going to consider just verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to summarize these two verses, which I believe is the summary of the whole, we could summarize it in this way. That God calls us, as Christians, to a life of service and faith by his grace and peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has called a people for his own possession. And as Christians, we are those people. And we are then to live out this calling through our faith and work for the glory of God in Christ. So the purpose of our time this morning is, I think, really to encourage us as Christians to live in light of this new identity. What does it mean to be called by God? What does it mean? What does it look like in our everyday life? In these opening verses, Paul introduces us to the sort of the grand themes of the letter. Like a subject line in an email that tells you what the email is about so that you sort of open it and actually read it. So Paul, in these opening two verses, uh, gives us a subject line so that we'll keep reading. Oh, this is glorious, this is good. I want to know more about what it means to be called by God into a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. So if you take notes this morning, Paul here lays out three elements to our new identity in Christ. Three elements. So if you take notes, there's three main ideas I want us to think about. Number one, you are submissive to Christ. In our new identity, it is marked by an element of submissiveness to the will of God. Secondly, you are united to Christ. And one of the great themes of this letter, as we'll see this morning, is our union with Christ. We are united to Christ. Third, you are reconciled through faith. You are reconciled to God. Through faith in Christ. So we're gonna consider here this morning our submission to Christ, our union to Christ, and our reconciliation through Christ. So those are the three words: submissive, united, and reconciled. Number one, verse one, we see that our new identity is marked by submission to Christ, modeled through the Apostle Paul. God has called Paul to a life of service for his glory. Paul has not stumbled into this job. He did not sign up for this job. He didn't go down to the gymnasium uh, during um, free period and go by the booth and sign up there at the apostles' table. No, he was called by God. This was not a job that was handed down to him through some long family tradition. Nor has Paul earned this position through diligent study and prayer. Rather, Paul tells us right there, out of the gate, that he has been called by the will of God. That his job title was one assigned to him, not one that he earned. Furthermore, he tells us that he, who he works for, who his boss is, who the upline is. It's none other than Jesus. The Apostle Paul answers to one and only the Messianic King revealed to us as Jesus. Now, what was the Apostle Paul's job? Well, look there at the verse. He tells us what his job was. His title was that of an apostle. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus. His job was to be a messenger of grace and to help build Christ's church through his apostolic writings. He was a messenger. Therefore, as he spoke, so Christ spoke. He's no different than our UN leaders, as as our country sends representatives to represent our country, that UN representative speaks on behalf of our country, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. And the message then that Paul delivered to the church in Ephesus was one of authority and power. Right out of the beginning, he wants to make clear to the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding region and to you this morning that the message that he has contained in this letter is a message none other than from Jesus. As one New Testament scholar often would say, that when we read this book, we should hear it in that distinct Galilean accent of Jesus. Because it comes with the same authority as if Jesus himself had pendant. And Paul here is, speaks highly of this office. In fact, later in the letter, he'll say this: "But that you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets." The the prophets in the Old Testament were God's spokesmen. The apostles in the New Testament, well, they were too, likewise, spokesmen for God. Paul's point is clear, and I hope you uh, come to wrestle with this, that he, the apostle Paul, has authority given to him by Jesus to speak truth into his church. When Paul speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's the point. God speaks. When the Apostle Paul speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this book, God is speaking. Paul also makes clear to his readers that he is a servant of Christ, a servant by the will of God. Notice again, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. That phrase, we could flip it to be possessive. He is Christ Jesus's apostle. He works for Jesus, he answers to Jesus, but all of this is, again, by the will of God. Paul had other plans for his life, of course. He didn't want anything to do with the church. He hated the church. He hated Jesus. Uh, The apostle, uh, excuse me, uh, Luke in his gospel says that Paul was an insolent opponent of the church. What does that mean? Uh, He would have been characterized by many of us today as a terrorist. He terrorized the early church. He killed, or had killed, one of the very first deacons in the church. The Apostle Paul locked up as many Christians as he could. He hated Jesus. That was until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he had a radical transformation as Jesus revealed himself to Paul as Lord and commanded him to follow him. And Jesus there on the road to Damascus uh, enlisted him into his army, And he said that you will follow me and you will be my messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. This is what he'll write later in chapter 3. That Paul is a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. This simple phrase is brimming with meaning. He works for Christ by the will of God. He serves Christ alone. This means that Paul has no alternative motive. He has no agenda that he's trying to push. It's not Paul versus Jesus. Paul works for Jesus. So if you've got a problem with Paul, if you've got a problem with Paul's theology, you have a problem with Jesus and Jesus' theology because he spoke for Jesus. While our conversion experience is unlike the apostle Paul. His life is a model, I believe, for each of us. He was a model of submission. And you and I also are called to a similar submission to the will of God. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, then your life should be marked by the kind of submission to the will of God that's characterized by a submission to His Word. The submission to these words contained in this book. You live not for yourself but for Christ. Just as the Apostle Paul's life was radically transformed and he was enlisted into his commission, so you and I who've been called out of darkness into light have been commissioned to do his will. So often we can remember times in our lives when we were children. We would go and do as we pleased. Maybe perhaps leave home and get on our bicycles or go on a a long journey and we know all those times that we checked out and didn't ask for permission, we ultimately got in trouble. Here, the Apostle Paul makes clear that when God calls us, we do not get to continue to make our own choices, nor do we get to make up our own rules or go out and do what, and live however we please. But one of the things that will mark this letter is that our lives are lived under submission to King Jesus. As a congregation, we must submit to Christ by serving others. This must be at the heart of our time together, and what we'll find is a heart of this letter. The serving one another, loving one another as God in Christ has loved you. How are you doing that in this new year? Do you intentionally think of people who you can serve each week? Do you come with this sort of expectation or anticipation of finding someone in this congregation that you can serve? Friend, don't just come and attend and leave. Come with a sense of expectation. I'm going to meet somebody that perhaps I know or perhaps I don't know so that I can meet a need in their life. Perhaps you could do that today through an encouraging text, a phone call, an email. Perhaps you could find someone that needs groceries or a trip to the doctor. There's so many ways that you and I can serve one another. As we think about this theme of submission to the will of God, this applies also to how we think about church. As a congregation, we want to submit ourselves to the Word. This means how we organize ourselves as a congregation as we organize the government of our church, how we do church, what we give ourselves to as a church, well, friends, we want to take our cues not from man, but from his word. If we just take this analogy that we are the body of Christ, and it's going to, make, it's going to be made so explicit in chapter five when the analogy is, is taken over to husbands and the way they care for their wives, well, in the same way Christ cares for his church, He's not going to leave his church to sort of figure it out on their own. No more than we would do in our own marriages. Oh, we'll hope it all kind of works out. No, it's intentional. And Jesus is intentional to help us understand what a church is and how and what we're to give ourselves to. We're going to think about that in this new year. Well, the point remains that as Christians, we've been called to serve Jesus. He's our Lord. He's our King. We do so by submitting We see, secondly, in this second half of verse 1, that we are not only called to live a life of submission, but that we are united to Christ. I want you to notice two things here that Paul is writing to a congregation that have gathered in and around Ephesus. He says as much, look there again, to the saints who are in Ephesus. What does that mean? Well, it means that they're Christians or saints who live in Ephesus. Wow. They're people. They're real people that lived in a real place, just like you and me. They were human beings that were born and had moms and dads and aunts and uncles and they had jobs and they had a culture that they lived in. There were things that were celebrating that culture and things that were despised. Ephesus was one of the largest cities of the known world. It was a, it was a massive metropolitan community. It was filled with all types of gloriously good things and terribly horrific things. The city was a a center of cultic worship. In fact, if you're a, a student of history, you know one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was right there in Ephesus. It was a glorious city of worship. Emperor worship was at the central of the life in Ephesus. They would worship Caesar as God. The city was also a cultural melting pot. It was a pagan city filled with the typical licentiousness and sexual perversion that you would find even today in a modern urban environment. But despite all this rampant wickedness, despite the idolatrous worship of Artemis, despite all of the sinful sexual perversions, God was still at work saving sinners. The gospel was transforming lives. And with this cultural climate brewing in the background, Paul writes to these people and he says, hey, yeah, I know things are a hot mess there in Ephesus, but you are saints. Paul's desire is to see this congregation grow in the knowledge of God and the grace that they have come to experience through Christ. Before he begins exhorting them to do anything, which comes in really chapter four, he reminds them of who they are already. And he describes them in two ways. Now, Paul will use and I'll, I'll point them out as we go throughout, parallelism, which just means that we have two ideas that complement one another laid in parallel. And look, look with me. you'll see them there. Saints in Ephesus, faithful in Christ. You see the parallel? Saints in Ephesus. Faithful in Christ. These two aspects are their identity. They are first saints in Ephesus and faithful in Christ. Amid the sinful, pluralistic culture, they stood out as saints. Now this word literally means holy ones. It's used in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel. Those who were set apart. Those who were saints. So it's not really just merely meaning the moral quality of them that they were saintly, but that they were set apart. They were called out of this this sinful place in Ephesus and they were identified as the people of God. They were the saints. But it also does have a moral component, doesn't it? That's often when you hear the word saint or holy one, you think of moral behavior. You think they're morally good. Note the importance of this idea that Paul is making. In the midst of the sinful world in which they found themselves, in the midst of all the rampant wickedness around them, they were set apart to be holy. This is what he'd later exhort them to in chapter 4. He said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, act like who you are. You're already this. You've been united to Christ. You've been made holy through the righteousness of another, this imputed righteousness. It's one of the great themes we'll think about in chapter 2, of the imputed righteousness of Christ. What it means to be united to Christ means that you, friend, who's struggling in your sin right now, if you have faith in Christ, you are holy. You're already holy. Do not grow weary of doing good. But secondly, he says, not only are they saints in Ephesus, but they are faithful in Christ Jesus. And of course, these prepositions are so important to, to communicate truth. The word in there, you just sort of blink over in your Bible, you're like, ah, I learned about prepositions a long time ago. I don't remember what they mean. Well, here, what they mean is, is that to be faithful in Christ Jesus means to be under the rule and reign of Jesus. It means to be united to Jesus such that your identity is enveloped under his rule. You are marked by him as one of his own. Let me just give you a quick Bible illustration. If you grew up in Baptist in Southern Baptist life, no doubt you were scared as a, as a young person. Perhaps even today you live in fear of one thing, and that is the mark of the beast. You're worried that they're going to put and plant things on you and do things to you and little microchips, and you're all freaked out about it, and even now I'm you know, sort of welling up in you with some fear. Have I been marked? Have I not been marked? Well, friend, if you're a Christian, you have been marked by Jesus. He has stamped you, and he says, that's mine. You can't touch it. And he's identified you as a believer, as one who is faithful because you are united to Christ. This is what Paul would similarly argue in Colossians 2. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, which is the circumcision of Christ. By being buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And this is why as Christians we practice baptism because what we're doing in baptism by dunking you under that water is we're identifying you with Jesus and with his people it is the mark an indelible mark that you are his you see it's this second line in the parallel, the parallel statement that Paul makes here that fills the gap how are we made holy well we're made holy because of our faith in Christ Because we have believed in Christ, we have received the righteousness of another. So it's not that we have improved our lives, made ourselves, cleaned us up, you know, started doing some good deeds, and then we are declared righteous. No, no, no. It's by faith we are made righteous through the righteousness of Jesus. And friends, this is not only true of them, but of us. See, as as a Christian, this grand and glorious description is applied to you. This is who you are, friend. so if you are sort of struggling with doubt, wondering whether or not, you know, you've done enough, you can never do enough, friend. You do not need to die and then for the church to confer this title of saint on you. Christ has already conferred it. He has already declared it. You are a saint. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, friend, you are a holy one of God, set apart for his good pleasure. And friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you do not self-consciously understand yourself to be a Christian, this passage is really a helpful reminder to you that we do not become saints by our actions, Rather, the Bible says that Christians are saints by degree of God. God confers this title. We do not earn this title. We do not earn the title of Christian. There's nothing we do that merits this. Not enough good deeds done in the flesh will ever confer to us faithful in Christ. Only the faith of another. Brothers and sisters, I just want you to look again at this preposition in Ephesus. And I make much to do about this because we sort of live in a, in a, in a cultural climate where, like, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. Look, and, and please, do, do not misunderstand me. I don't mean to diminish the perverseness of our culture. Our culture is really, 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 really messed up, right? I mean, just watch one or two commercials this afternoon. And you will get a palpable sense of how wicked we are and what we love. We are far from God, okay? As a nation, as a cultural people, we are far, 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 we've gone off the deep end, right? And so was was Ephesus. They were on the deep end. They were on the, the Sodom and Gomorrah level of wickedness. But yet... We are not called out of this world, but called to serve Christ in this world. So we can come and do our little holy huddle here and isolate ourselves from the rampant wickedness around us. Or we can get busy living in the world and helping transform those in the world by calling them to faith in Christ. When's the last time you ever invited someone to church? When's the last time you, like, talked to your neighbor without complaining about them, and said, hey, why don't you come to church with me, not so that we can impress you with how amazing we are, but so that you can hear the glorious news that God came to save sinners like you. And I know that because he came to save me, and I'm pretty wicked. See, friends, one of the glorious truths we see is that we have faith in Christ in the midst of rampant wickedness. God is still at work saving sinners for his glory. I want you to notice here also that this, this epithet, saint and faithful, identifies and unifies us as a congregation, right? He doesn't say you know, to all the you know, Florida Gator fans in Ephesus or all the Georgia Bulldog fans in Ephesus or all the rich people in Ephesus or all the white people in Ephesus or all the Asians in Ephesus. Notice there's no descriptor like that. He says to the saints in Ephesus. In other words, what unifies us and identifies us isn't all these peripheral things that often unifies us, but rather the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saints and believers. This is what the church should be comprised of. You see, the church is not comprised of seekers. And those interested, but of those who have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. That doesn't mean we don't have, you know, seekers and sinners gathered with us. But those that we are identifying as First Baptist Church, Avon Park, are regenerate members. In fact, this is really Baptist only claim in church history. Regenerate church membership. It's our only contribution in the last 2,000 years. And as a congregation, this is why we are so judicious with our membership role, because of this verse and many others like them, because the church is made up of regenerate people who have been called out of darkness into light. So through God's gracious call, we receive this new identity, not that we've earned it by moral living, but that it's given to us through our union in Christ. Like a parent on that glorious day when a child is born, when a child is adopted, we, we put a name on them. We name them. We claim them as our own. That's mine. So also, God has claimed you and puts you, a name on you, the family name. And the family name is holy because God is holy. Well, lastly and very quickly, I want to look at this last point, verse 2. We won't spend as much time because I'm going to develop it much more in the, in the weeks ahead. But Paul here in verse 2 gives us a blessing on the congregation, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He desires for them to grow in grace and peace. Now, of course, these two words he's borrowing. The word grace was a customary greeting, though he changed it a bit. Customarily, in Greco-Roman times, when you greeted someone, you would say something like rejoice or have a good day, right? Some sort of Hello, how are you? So you're, you're, you're giving them something good. And, and in Jewish circles, they would have said shalom, which means peace, peace. But Paul changes it a bit here. He changes the Greek word to Chris, which means grace, sort of rang in the ear of the Grecos. They would have said, oh, yes, we remember sort of saying rejoice. But, but here he's saying grace. I, I desire you not just to rejoice. I want you to know God's grace. This is what he'll take up in chapter 2 to know the, the grace of God. Or even in the, in the subsequent verses, he talks about this grace that is being lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, you hear even this aspect of peace. That God is working to reconcile a people for his own possession Through the grace of God, through the finished work of Christ. All these themes he's going to pick up throughout. And the point really comes to us is that salvation, reconciliation, is by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the glorious gospel that we this morning celebrate and worship and even will memorialize as we remember the grace of God in Christ. You see, as Christians, we are a unique and sacred people in a unique and sacred position. We are recipients of grace. Not everyone is, but we have been recipients of grace. Therefore, if we are recipients of grace, Paul desired for them not merely to keep the grace bottled up for themselves, but to then be dispensers of grace, to share that grace. You see, our position is one of a humble position not of pride you see if we rightly understand grace then we rightly understand we are undeserving of grace we've done nothing to merit it it was by divine election alone that we have grace and so therefore we give that grace to as many people as we can find who will receive it and peace Paul says that peace only comes through the, from the Father through the Son. Peace with God and peace with one another. Again, chapter 2 will be taken up with this theme of reconciliation, that we've been reconciled to God and to one another. What a glorious truth. Friend, do you have broken families in your life? Do you have, do you have broken homes? Do you have people who are you know, unreconciled? Maybe even this morning you're unreconciled in relationship with someone else? One of the themes we'll think about in chapter two is that God, from eternity past, has been working out a plan to unite all things in, in him, in Jesus, things in heaven, things on earth. Lastly, I want to just point out very quickly, grace to you and peace from, is the source of grace and peace, is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in two verses. I mean, just think about this. These are just a couple words. Notice the, re- the, the thrice repetition. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, and then lastly, the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in just two verses. Paul here has made an emphasis that everything that we are going to enjoy in this letter comes to us through Jesus Christ. You cannot have peace with God apart from Jesus. You cannot have grace apart from Jesus. You cannot have holiness. You cannot have faith apart from Jesus. You can't have any of this apart from Jesus. The point that Paul is making here is is clear that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has come to reconcile us to the Father through his finished work on Calvary's cross. This is why he will say, for example, in chapter, chapter 1, verse 7, in him you have Redemption, look at it, verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Friends, you have no hope of forgiveness of sin apart from the blood of Jesus. What can wash our sin away? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. While this isn't Paul's main point here, it is a point that he'll take up later in his two main prayers as we'll consider. Brothers and sisters, I think the response to this text is clear. That we ought to humbly receive God's grace and peace through Jesus Christ. That through our faith in Christ, we have been reconciled to the Father. For the better part of two decades now, every year, two main manufacturers in America put out two products which the masses flock to now it has waned a bit in the last couple years but nonetheless this anticipation and expectation of new cell phones floods the market right and remember years ago we would see people line up for hours on end to buy thousand dollar cell phones and we would kind of scratch our heads and say what are they doing And every year, these manufacturers put out these new, glimmering, blinking screens, each one more innovative, of course faster, and always with bigger storage and, the best part, bigger screens, right? Who knew we would be walking around with phones as big as books? But we do. And as people wait in these lines and spend enormous amount of money purchasing these phones, one of the things remains the same, isn't it? They make phone calls through all of the innovation and technology, through all the 5G and LTE and all these high-sounding words, through the big screens and the fast processors, they remain the same. They make phone calls. You pick it up, you dial in a number, that hasn't changed. In fact, they're really not much unlike those old rotary phones that some of you still have hanging up in your house. They make phone calls. You call people, you dial the number, and someone answers on the other end. They're the same. And sometimes we think about the gospel like that. We're just the same model, just upgraded a little bit. We're a little faster, a little smarter, you know, less sinful. We're really just the same thing. We're a phone. But friend, I hope to show you this, this new year through this letter That when we are saved, we are actually made new. We're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, and behold, the new has come. That through the gospel, our lives have been transformed. That God has not called us to be a better version of ourselves, but to a new version. We've not been upgraded. We've been made into a completely different object. Once we might have been a phone, but now we're something else. God has made us a new creation. We are now subjects of Christ. We're united to Christ. Friends, we're recipients of reconciliation through Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is who you are now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, help us to know these things to have a feeling, sense of the things we've considered this morning. Our desire is to know this Christ who has come to make us holy, who has come to give us faith, who has come to reconcile us to the Father through His finished work. Our prayer in this new year Is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us a spirit of wisdom and of.